World building can be as involved and complex as you want it to be. There's something fun to me and freeing about sketching out ideas on paper, working with concepts to form a flavor for a place in the game world, and then watching with excitement as the players begin to move around in that place and bring it to life. I find it to be incredibly rewarding when I put together a description and the players grab onto the details and help expand them. It's this collaborative storytelling that imbues a new part of the world with a life all its own and perhaps even makes a place memorable for years to come. Recent in-game developments have put us in mind of the slave pits of Ankar and Setharban. But in my mind I have strong mental images of the hilltop city of Isling, the jungle dwarf settlement in Kizaru, the mines of Skyhome, and the misty spray of Kasika in Gasa, and so much more. And really it's due in large part to all the ways the players have helped expand them in my imagination. It's also easy to run out of ideas. And so I thought it would be a good idea to return to our Creation Corner series. It's been a while, I realized this recently, since I last did one of these, and I've missed doing them. I have ideas for more. We may have one next week also, in fact, as we work in another recording day next Saturday. If you've been missing this series, I do hope you'll find it helpful. You may recall that way back at the beginning of this podcast, Thane and I sat down to discuss sources of inspiration for Dungeon Masters in a couple Creation Corner episodes that we called the DM's Well of Inspiration. In those, we listed lots of ways for DMs to stimulate their thoughts. We suggested reading, and especially reading with an eye toward implementing aspects of what we cover in our games. I thought I would use my current reading project this week as a way to give an example and suggest a book that I've found interesting. So let's get going. The Survey of Cornwall. The book I've been reading through is a modern-day reprint of a text that is really quite old. It's called The Survey of Cornwall, and it was published by Richard Carew in 1602. I'll give a little background first and then share some things I've taken from it that could be useful in future world-building efforts. I think they've been useful for me, and I really hope that you'll find them to be about the same. First, as background, the place. Many may not have heard of Cornwall, and I completely understand if that's the case. It is a relatively small piece of land that juts out of the southwest corner of England, separating the Bristol Channel from the English Channel. Area-wise, it's less than 1,400 square miles, making it smaller even than the state of Rhode Island in the U.S. Its location might make it seem like something of an afterthought for many travelers to the United Kingdom, but I would love to get over there and visit sometime. Even if you've never heard of this area of England, you've probably come across some level of Cornish influence because it's really crept into a lot of aspects of popular culture, and we may well have been exposed to it without knowing it. If you've ever watched the shows Doc Martin or Poldark on streaming services, you'll remember they were set in Cornwall. In broader pop culture, Hagrid's accent in the Harry Potter movies was strongly West Country, which includes that round Cornish accent. And if you've ever listened to Hagrid talk and thought, boy, he sounds like a pirate, you're not far off. That stereotypical piratey accent often tries to approximate a Cornish accent, 
which makes sense because Cornwall was a notorious haven for them. In fact, if you've ever heard of the Gilbert and Sullivan play The Pirates of Penzance, well, Penzance is a town almost at the very west end of Cornwall. As a special bonus, if you're looking for an over-the-top taste of Cornish corniness, you may well enjoy a song by the Wurzels in 1976, a former number one hit called The Combine Harvester, and I will be sure to link to this gem in the show notes. It's worth a listen. So whether or not you know it, Cornwall has come to you in many different forms, although not necessarily in an in-your-face manner. As I mentioned earlier, the survey of Cornwall was written by Richard Carew throughout the late 1500s, and finally it was published in 1602. Richard was a landed gentleman with an estate in Antony Cornwall, which is at the far eastern end of Cornwall, right next to the English border. He was apparently quite accomplished. He was fluent in multiple languages, involved in society, and rubbing elbows with some of the great literary figures of his day. He was also interested in choreography, a form of narrative that attempted to capture details about geographic regions. If this word choreography is new to you, it's not choreography, like dance arrangement, then I am in good company because I had never seen this word before reading this book. I took a moment to look it up in my print version of the Oxford English Dictionary, and here's how it's defined. A term, with its family of words greatly in vogue in the 17th century, but now little used, its ancient sphere being covered by geography and topography jointly, the art or practice of describing or of delineating on a map or chart particular regions or districts, as distinguished from geography taken as dealing with the earth in general and less distinctly from topography, which deals with particular places as towns, etc. So a form of writing that deals with describing places. As a side note, if you have the opportunity Please look up words in print dictionaries as often as possible. When you look up words online, you get your answer and you go about your business, completely unaware that the word just before the choreograph family of words is chork, a chiefly Scottish word that means to make the noise which the feet do when the shoes are full of water. Who wants to live without that word in their vocabulary? What's neat to me about the choreographic school of writing is that it lends itself to more than dry descriptions of geography and topography. That, that would be very boring. Instead, choreography is a form of writing that encourages the use of interesting stories, of little asides that breathe life into an otherwise drab narrative. If you look at the ancient writings of Herodotus, or Tacitus, or Pliny, you'll find that their lists of plants or foods or people have little stories sprinkled throughout that give tantalizing glimpses at how people thought or experienced life at the time. The survey does this also, and it's these anecdotes that especially capture my attention and imagination because they enliven everything. Perhaps the most helpful aspect of the book is that it provides a snapshot of contemporary life in 16th century Cornwall. When we consider history, we often think of it in terms of sweeping events that affect nations, of alliances forged between powers, of great people, of armies marching to determine ownership of vast areas. But there's a lot to appreciate about the daily details, what life was like. Things we might not even notice or think relevant, but are just as important in terms of culture and experience. These are the details that tend to get lost in the flow of time, and we find we miss them the most. What did a people eat? What did they believe? How did they deal with trouble? What scared them? What excited them? There are myriad questions we could ask, and these sorts of things are the soft tissue that wastes away even as we sift through the remaining pieces a society leaves behind. 
I'll share some examples of things that really caught my eye in just a moment, but I want to provide a warning. If you're interested at all in checking out this book by the time I'm done, and I hope you do, be aware that it may take some getting used to. For one thing, the text remains true to how it would have appeared in print in 1602, so the wording is older, though surprisingly readable. U's and V's tend to get swapped around, the text uses the long S, and every now and then you may see a squiggle above a word that indicates an M or an N needs to get dropped into the word somewhere. It's definitely unusual for us today, but if you're up to the challenge, it's not hard to get the hang of it, and like I said, it's just fun reading. It reads surprisingly well considering how old it is. Now for some details that I hope will whet your appetite. I really appreciate Richard Carew's far-ranging interests. As a wealthy landowner, he needed to have different abilities that allowed him to manage a productive estate, and so he cultivated his interests through his education and then in his life as a landowner. As you read, you'll find that he covers all sorts of neat aspects of daily life. Here's a quick sampling. Industry. One area of particular interest to a dungeon master looking to build a world that feels lived in is industry. People need to make money in order to live. And so it's not enough for people to have a town. The town needs to have some reason for being and a means of supporting itself. And by reading the survey, it's possible to see how to tie in some real-world elements that can give that illusion of reality. Carew focuses on two major industries in his survey. The first of these, of course, is fishing. And that makes absolute sense because this is a land surrounded by water on three out of four sides, and even that fourth side has the Dartmoor, which is very marshy. So people that lived in Cornwall obviously had to know their fish. They were, after all, surrounded by them. From his writing, it seems equally evident that Carew was a fisherman himself, and he lovingly described the various types of fish pulled in daily from the waters, as well as the means by which they were taken. If you choose to read this book, get ready to learn about the different kinds of fishing nets and the markets in which the fish were sold. The other industry, primary in Cornwall, was mining. Since the dawn of recorded history, Cornwall has been known for its tin mines. The unbelievably brave Pythias of Marseille, a Greek explorer and writer born in about 350 BC, circumnavigated the British Isles and even ventured well above them into the Arctic Circle, and that is genuinely hard for me to imagine at that time. Even though his original writings have long been lost, writers that came after him had access to his writings and shared quotes and fragments of his original text, so we have some of his written work preserved. Through a chain of contemporaries borrowing, Diodorus Siculus mentions an island named Ictus, where tin is found, and to which the Britons cross. And so very early on, we have record of people in southern England today, mining tin, bringing it to this island for trade. And many researchers seem to place this island somewhere in the English Channel, which would, of course, represent a convenient trade location for this commodity. And tin would become very crucial in the Bronze Age because tin is a component of bronze, and that would lead to weapons that would be stronger than other weapons that were in existence at the time. So tin mining was very much a way of life in 16th century Cornwall, and it extended well beyond that. So it's no surprise that Carew spends time explaining aspects of mining operations. And so he gets into things like how mines are constructed, the methods of withdrawing tin from the earth. It's really neat and very interesting to read about, especially if you've never had any dealings with mines. 
Something else that he did that I found interesting is he described the character of a people. As a Cornishman himself, it seems like Carew couldn't help but boast a bit about his kin. After a section where he lists the skills of an accomplished man of Bodmin, which is an area in central Cornwall, he shares this. The Cornish minds, thus qualified, are the better enabled to express the same by the strong, active, and healthful constitution of their bodies, touching each whereof a little in particular, though we shall have a fitter general occasion to discourse thereof, where we handle their pastimes. For strength, one John Array, well known to me as my tenant, carried upon his back at one time six bushels of wheat and meal, reckoning fifteen gallons to the bushel and the miller, a lubber of four and twenty years age upon the whole. I'll translate this a little bit for you. He's describing one of the people that lived on his property, John Array, who was able to carry this vast amount of what amounts to wheat flour on his back. If the calculations I did were accurate and a gallon of flour weighs about eight pounds, this guy was moving eight pounds with 15 to the bushel times six because he was carrying six bushels of this on his back. That's 720 pounds of flour at a time on his back. That's a lot of weight. In the same section, Carew described a couple other Cornishmen who were also very strong. He described one John Roman who could carry a whole ox carcass, and then someone named Kiltor who would lie on his back on the ground near a castle wall, and he could throw a stone of some pounds weight over the tower's top which leadeth into the park. I've tried throwing from my back lying on the ground before. It is not easy with a light weight. And here is somebody who is throwing a ball that weighs several pounds over a tower on a castle wall. That is impressive. So what I wanted to convey with this is if you're trying to set up a character of a people in your fantasy world DMs, consider how to establish a general reputation for them. These were notable people amongst the Cornish, according to Richard Carew, but they indicate a general trend of great health and strength, characteristics that could set a people or even just a small region apart from others within the area you're developing. Something to think about. Another section of his book, it, this was just such a weird placement, but it helps you to understand that really when you're designing non-player characters, NPCs, DMs, you can get pretty wacky with it. After discussing the presence of venomous snakes in Cornwall, Carew relates a story. The margin note that came with the text gives the name Martin Trewinard. Here's the story. This mention of snakes calleth to my remembrance how not long since a merry Cornish gentleman tried that old fable to be no fable, which showeth the dangerous entertaining of such a guest. He's talking about uh, a snake, a pet snake that this guy had, a venomous snake. For he, having gotten one of that kind, a venomous snake, and broken out his teeth, wherein consisteth his venom, used to carry him about in his bosom, to set him to his mouth, to make him lick his spittle, and when he came amongst gentlewomen, would cast him out suddenly to put them in fear. I, I just can't imagine walking up to a guy, and as he's talking with you, a snake comes crawling out of his shirt, or he reaches in and he pulls out this snake, and you can see the triangle-shaped head of a venomous snake. He's defanged it so that it won't hurt him, but he just carries the snake around inside his shirt, ready to try and frighten the people that he's talking with. That's, that's what this guy was up to. There's a moral to this story. In the end, their vain dread proved safer than his foolhardiness, for as he once walked alone and was kissing this gentle playfellow, the snake, in good earnest with a stump, either newly grown up or not fully pulled out, 
bit him fast by the tongue, which therewith began so to rankle and swell, that by the time he had knocked this foul player on the head and was able to come to his place of abode, his mouth was scarce able to contain it. Therefore he was desirous to show his mishap, and by gestures to crave aid and earnest of the gentlewomen, whom he had aforetime often scared in sport. Quite literally, his prank bit him. The snake either started to grow a venomous fang again, or he hadn't completely removed one, and when it bit him on his tongue as he was playing with it, it injected its venom and caused his tongue to swell. So really, what, what I'm getting at here, again, this is a, f- a funny little story that Carew throws in as descriptive of the kinds of things that the people of the countryside did and what, the kinds of things they would do for sport or as jokes. And it, it just brings this period to life in a way that a, a dry history book just cannot. Another section of interest to me in particular, language, at the beginning of this ramble, I mentioned that the author was fluent in several languages. Unfortunately for us, his interests in this regard seem to focus on international trade. It seems he only gave scant attention to his native Cornish tongue. This doesn't mean he ignores it, he just didn't seem to give it the same weight he did his other interests like French and Dutch and Spanish. There's a short section in which he goes over some high-level aspects of the ancient Celtic Cornish language, which still survives somewhat today, although it doesn't have a large speaking population, those looking to inject linguistic variety into a campaign setting might benefit from what he has to share. Although you do need to take some of his notes on Cornish with a grain of salt, it is interesting to look at the way he describes it, and you might be able to take these elements and work them into a campaign setting of your own. I just think it's neat. The final thing I wanted to share is sayings. In connection with the previous section on language, Carew spends a little time discussing common elements of Cornish names, and in so doing he provides us with a neat little mnemonic device. By tre, pole, and pen, ye shall know the Cornish men. That is, many Cornish family and place names begin with tre, T-R-E, which means a settlement or homestead, so when you see Trelawney or Trevathan, that T-R-E prefix means a settlement or homestead. Pol, a pond, lake, or well. So you'll see that in Polcaris, Polpero, or like I mentioned earlier, the TV series Poldark. Or Pen, a hill or headland. Pendarvis, Penzance. So DMs, I'll ask you, as you're building your places, are you considering common phrases or prefixes or even suffixes like these, where it helps to unify a place And it can help knit together your work in a way that makes someone from that area or a place from that area immediately recognizable. Things to think about. So I think that's all a good start. I've enjoyed this book so far. And if you choose to check it out, that's wonderful. I've shared a few things from it. There's plenty more to discover within the survey of Cornwall. Sadly, I didn't think to do this episode until I was about halfway through the book. So I'm sure I've left out a lot of things that I found interesting on my initial pass, but I do hope you'll believe me when I say there is lots more to draw from. I've given you some of the salient points, but there are lots of hidden gems tucked away within the pages that I've already read, which means, of course, more fodder for helping to devise fantasy worlds. If you're interested in reading more, be sure to check out the link to the book that I'll include in the show notes. I'll close with just a few questions. Did this episode give you anything to consider? Are you interested in checking out this book? Do you have any other books that you think are worth checking out and want to share them with me? 
Feel free to contact us on Twitter and Instagram at StackOfDice. You can email us at stat.o.dice at gmail.com. Probably the easiest way to get hold of us is through our Discord server. And you can find information about that on our Twitter and Instagram pages. Stackers, I've genuinely appreciated being able to get back to Creation Corner episodes. This was a lot of fun to put together, and hopefully you found it to be useful and thought-provoking. If this prompted any ideas in you, I'd love to hear about them. Please do share them with me, and I'll be looking forward to seeing you back at our table soon, right here at Stack of Dice.